So over the course of the retreat, we've been exploring the Noble Eightfold Path. And there's still three to go, and we're almost at the end. So tonight, I will just give a relatively brief uh, overview of two of the three ethical path factors. And then we'll do the third one tomorrow morning. So, so far in the retreat, I've mostly been focusing on the wisdom and the meditation factors, which form the beginning and the end of the path. And tonight, I'll be coming more into the middle of the path with the sila aspects or the ethical aspects. And these are the three factors that we generally cultivate more in our daily life. So right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And before we get to these, though, it's just a reminder that the path starts with the wisdom factors of right view and right thought. Because one aspect of right view is that understanding of the law of cause and effect, that actions have consequences. And that the quality of our minds affects the quality of the actions that we do. And actions here refers to actions of body, speech, and mind. So if we want our actions to be skillful, we need to make sure they arise from a mind that is not caught up in greed, hatred, and delusion. And this brings us to the importance of the second path factor, which is right thought. And as we've seen, right thought is defined as the intention to renunciation, to counter greed, the intention to goodwill or metta, to counter ill will, and the intention to non-harming or compassion to counter-harming. So, as I've mentioned a few times, there is a very significant connection between what we do in our daily lives and what we do on our meditation cushions, because meditation doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not nicely sealed off from everything else we do in the world. So if we want our meditation practice to deepen and to bring us its full benefits, we really need to be paying pretty careful attention to how we act in the world. So again, these three ethical conduct factors, right speech, right action, right livelihood, I think of these as the relational factors of the path because they affect, they're about how we communicate, how we behave, how we live in society and how we interact with others. And I saved these three to last partly because they are more about our daily lives. So it's possible that as we come to this, the end of this retreat that we might already be starting to think about how we're living our lives, what we're doing, how to engage with what we've learned here on retreat more fully in our regular lives with this recognition that the more we can, um, more care we take with our sila, the stronger our meditation practice will become. So what is meant by sila, ethical conduct? As a very basic working definition, it's the commitment to not harming, not harming ourselves, not harming others through actions of body and speech and mind. And it's important to keep in mind that this training is done voluntarily. 
It's not done out of a sense of obligation or obedience or duty or because someone tells us to. It's done because of our understanding of right view, that maintaining and refining ethical conduct leads to our own and others' welfare and happiness. And just to mention that um, <clears throat> ethical conduct is another of those arenas where we that tends to um, bring in a lot of our default conditioning, strong social and cultural conditioning, when we hear phrases like ethical conduct. It can immediately trigger some more challenging mind states, perhaps unworthiness or anxiety or self-judgment, inadequacy, shame, and so on. So even as you're listening to this talk, it might be uh, helpful to keep an eye out to just to notice if any of those um, kinds of conditionings might be um, coming up. And if necessary, at times to really apply the antidotes of kindness and compassion, self-compassion. Because it's, uh, it is quite a normal part of our conditioning. And I heard uh, Gil Fronstel say something in relation to this last year. He was talking about how theistic religions, theistic traditions, that, which means ones that are centered around a god of some kind, they have a sense of an external judge, so a higher power that is looking down at you and assessing your right to exist in some cases, judging you. And we can, if we're brought up with a, a theistic tradition with one of those kind of gods, we can have this um, fear of being judged by others, this sense that somebody's watching your every move and you'd better stay on track or else. He went on to say that with non-theistic religions, the religions that are not based around a god, such as Buddhism, although there's not so much a sense of a higher power who's judging us, instead there can be an internalized perfectionism. So we hear um, awakening and language that might sound quite absolute or ultimate, and it can trigger this inner sense of idealism which leads to inner judgment. And when I heard Gill say this, I thought, wow, you know, in the West we have the worst of both worlds because we have a, often a Judeo-Christian heritage that uh, many of us are brought up in. And then we apply the Buddhism and so we're judged externally and we're judged internally too. So just to uh, normalize that there can be a lot of conditioning around this terrain when we start to explore our conduct. So in spite of that, sila is the foundation of the whole path. It's really where it starts. And although it's the foundation, it's not something that's only a teaching for beginners. In fact, it's endlessly refinable throughout our whole lives. And as I've been emphasizing, the Buddha really taught a graduated path, a progressive path. And it's when he was starting with um, total beginners, people who had no understanding of the tradition, of any uh, path of practice, he always started with teaching about dana, teaching about generosity. 
And then when he felt that people had some understanding of the value of generosity, he went on to explain sila as an expression of that generosity. Then once there was some commitment to maintaining basic basic ethical standards, then he continued and gave the teachings about meditation, samadhi and wisdom or panya. So I just like to highlight this connection between ethical conduct and generosity because this understanding could be an antidote to the common perception of ethical conduct as being about restraint or even deprivation. Perhaps something that we do grudgingly out of a sense of duty or even fear. Instead, in the Buddha's teachings, sila has a very direct and immediate beneficial result, not only for ourselves, but for others too. And it can be experienced as a gift that brings happiness for all. So I'd like to read a passage from the suttas that describe this in terms of keeping the five precepts which we recited together on opening night. And I'll read the passage that uh, starts with the first precept, which is to uh, refrain from killing living beings. So it says here, a noble disciple, having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from the destruction of life. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to an immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear, enmity, and affliction. He or she, in turn, enjoys immeasurable freedom from fear, enmity, and affliction. This is the first gift, a great gift, that leads to what is wished for, desired, and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. And then it goes on for each of the other four training precepts of not stealing, not misusing our sexual energy, not lying and not taking intoxicants. So we give to others the gift of freedom from uh, fear, anxiety and affliction, but we ourselves share in that same gift because we don't have to live in fear of retaliation of abuse, of punishment, of shame, of being caught out, and so on. So the gift works both ways. So the overall context of sila is really rooted in this uh, intention of non-harming. And in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path, the Buddha broke sila down into these three distinct aspects of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And as I said, I'll talk more about right speech tomorrow morning, but for this, so for this <coughs> evening, I'll just um, come back to right action and right livelihood. And even though we separate them out, as I've been emphasizing, all of them really work together and need each other to strengthen and support each other. So again... We see this when the relationship between right action and several of the other path factors. It says right view is the forerunner. How is right view the forerunner? One discerns wrong action as wrong action and right action as right action. This is one's right view. And what is wrong action? Killing, taking what is not given, illicit sex. This is wrong action. 
one makes an effort for the abandoning of wrong action and for entering into right action. This is one's right effort. One is mindful to abandon wrong action and to enter and remain in right action. This is one's right mindfulness. Thus, these three qualities, right view, right effort, and right mindfulness, run and circle around right action. So we need right view to help us see what right action is, not killing, not stealing, not engaging in illicit sex. But in order to actually behave in the appropriate ways, we need right mindfulness to help us pay continual attention to what we're doing. And right effort is the effort it takes to keep moving us away from unskillful action and towards skillful action. So these three are included in the first three of the five precepts, refraining from killing living beings, refraining from stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct. The, just to say in relation to refraining from sexual misconduct, this refers to any misuse of our sexual energy that harms either ourselves or others. And so it involves avoiding any form of coercive sex, adulterous relationships, sex with minors, sex where, with con- where consent is not freely given, and so on. It doesn't uh, exclude things like premarital sex or same-sex relationships because the emphasis is on what's harmful rather than uh, conforming to societal norms. And we also might be worth pointing out that the... Uh, language of the third precept it's usually translated as sexual misconduct but the literal translation from the Pali refers to sensual misconduct senses misusing uh, the sense pleasures so we can expand this we can refine this precept to not only be about sexual desire but sense desire that's harmful so for example addiction to food or to shopping or to mobile phones or computer games or even to overwork, we can classify these as aspects of sensual misconduct. So just to name that as one way that um, we can endlessly refine these trainings. And then the next one, right livelihood, also can be expanded. It starts uh, in the early teachings as a fairly basic uh, definition and it's important because we spend a significant of our significant amount of our time engaged in our livelihoods and as gil fronstel points out in general the things that we do repeatedly have much greater consequences than the things we do only once or a few times and the effects of these may ripple further out into our society and deeper into our hearts So for lay people, Bhikkhu Bodhi summarizes right livelihood as that we should gain our wealth in accordance with certain standards, only by legal means, not illegally. We should acquire it peacefully, without coercion or violence. We should acquire it honestly, not by trickery or deceit. 
and we should acquire it in ways which do not entail harm and suffering for others. And I think it's worth making the point that the Buddha did not advocate poverty as a virtue. He recognized the suffering that comes from not being able to take care of our basic needs. So he had no issue with people acquiring wealth so long as it was done in ways that didn't create harm and that that wealth was then used wisely and skillfully. So he was uh, very pragmatic in relation to this. And there's one teaching where it says, well, that points to this. He says, a householder, knowing his or her income and expenses, leads a balanced life, neither extravagant nor miserly. So again, we see that middle way of not extravagant, not miserly. And perhaps because livelihood is so tied up with our financial survival, our survival generally, it often does bring strong conditioning with it. And I was reflecting about this in the context of retreat, where we don't really have uh, many responsibilities. We don't have uh, um, the pressure that we might do in our regular livelihood. But it's amazing how even with things that seem quite simple, like the mindfulness jobs and the bell ringing and so on, how just those can activate so much of our conditioning. And I've seen this play out for myself uh, during various retreats. So sometimes with our mindfulness jobs, there's a delight in being relieved of the monotony of sitting, walking, sitting, walking. And we get all caught up in adding extra tasks to keep ourselves busy, justifying it as, well, I'm just doing my job well. Sometimes we worry about doing the task right. We get um, this fear rooted in perfectionism and we find ourselves getting caught in performance anxiety. Sometimes we find our, comp- our competitiveness gets activated and we get caught in judging our co-workers and trying to outdo them. I had an Embarrassing example of this on one of my first retreats where I was chopping food in the kitchen in Thailand and I was quite fast and I was quite proud of being fast and the person opposite me was really slow, like clunk, clunk. And day after day, I just would get caught in these mind states. But at the end of the retreat, I started talking to this person and they told me that it was their second retreat. And the first retreat they'd done 10 years earlier, they had come in with a a full-blown heroin addiction and they had gone cold turkey during the retreat and stayed clean ever since. And as soon as I heard this, my conceit just evaporated because... I thought doing a 10-day retreat was hard, but I couldn't imagine doing it while also going cold turkey. So the fact that they chopped carrots slowly (laughs) suddenly wasn't that relevant anymore. So we have these different things that play out, perhaps the desire to impress or to please our fellow meditators or the volunteers or the managers, and we overcompensate by doing too much too fast. Or other times we have resentment that we have to do any kind of job at all and we get caught in doing just the bare minimum because it's interfering with my practice. 
So we can just see, hopefully with humor, these different ways that even these little uh, meditator jobs can trigger our default conditioning. And as with all the other arenas, they can it can really expand into every aspect of how we live our lives. And according, again, to Gil Fransel, this is actually a clearer definition of the Pali word that's translated as right livelihood. He says, ajiva, which is that Pali word, means the way one lives. The way one lives. So it encompasses more than one's job or occupation. It includes such lifestyle choices as what we buy, consume, use for housing, and rely on for financial support. It also includes how we parent, care for our family, or live in retirement. When walking the Eightfold Path, the question regarding right livelihood is whether or not the way we live moves us towards more compassion, peace, and freedom. Is it nourishing? Does it support the development of ease and insight? Does it help us become a better, happier person? And does it help others? So if we start to explore our livelihood, our way of life in terms of these criteria, then there are a lot more nuances and subtleties to it than just what what kind of job we do. So... These subtleties and nuances, at times we might also find complications and challenges and conflicting values because we do live in a capitalist society and this is a very different context from the Buddha's time. But even back then, the Buddha acknowledged that those who followed his teachings were swimming upstream because many of the values that these teachings promote, such as generosity and kindness and compassion, restraint, renunciation, equanimity, and so on, they're not the values of mainstream society. So inevitably, as we try to navigate the world in more skillful ways, we're likely to run into challenges. And that's another reason why I think it's so important to have a regular connection to sangha, to community, to people who are, um, to spiritual friends, because we really need each other for moral support. And this aspect of paying attention to community and perhaps to offering Dharma service, to becoming more engaged uh, in supporting uh, people who are on the path, this too can be included within right livelihood. So I'd like to finish, I'd like to keep this brief and finish with one last quote from the suttas that shows the relationship between ethical conduct and happiness and freedom very clearly. And it's an exchange between the Buddha's long-term attendant, Ananda, and the Buddha. And I don't know what the the backstory was, but uh, I wonder if Ananda was having a moment of doubt of some kind because he went to the Buddha and asked him, what's the point of ethical conduct? And the Buddha replied, Ananda, the purpose and benefit of wholesome virtuous behavior is non-regret. The purpose and benefit of non-regret is joy. 
The purpose and benefit of joy is rapture. The purpose and benefit of rapture is tranquility. The purpose and benefit of tranquility is pleasure. The purpose and benefit of pleasure is concentration. The purpose and benefit of concentration is the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. The purpose and benefit of the knowledge and vision of things as they really are is disenchantment and dispassion. And the purpose and benefit of disenchantment and dispassion is the knowledge and vision of liberation. Thus, ananda, wholesome, virtuous behavior, progressively leads to the foremost, in other words, to nibbana. So, that's a lot that leads a very long way, and I hope that uh, brings a sense of inspiration. It's not just about doing one's duty or doing the right thing. It has very powerful long-term benefits for we ourselves and everyone we engage with. So thank you for your attention. Let's take just a minute of silence to let the words dissolve and to then transition into whatever questions you might have. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.